Five years ago next month, I interviewed here at Shalom using the then nascent technology of Zoom. And while I sat at my computer in Indiana, I met virtually with the call committee for an interview. Little did we know that the use of that technology would be a harbinger of things to come. But that's not what I want to talk about today. One question from that interview sticks with me to this day. There's a lot of passion behind this question, a lot of hopes, a lot of dreams, maybe even some fears. Pastor, how do you envision Shalom becoming a great church? I didn't quite know how to answer that question. So I asked the committee what they meant by the word great. And we had a really productive and fruitful discussion about the meaning of that word, what it means to be a great church. And fortunately, it was a discussion that centered around an alternate definition of the term great. Because we all know that when it comes to how church is done in the American marketplace, there's a dominant definition of greatness out there. And that is, bigger is better. Bigger is better. From the denomination of the 1950s and 60s to the megachurch of the 2000s, the definition of a great church has revolved around the numbers. It's taken its cue from our wider capitalist society. More money, more members, more programs, more franchises, aka congregations, more branding, more influence, more clout with the culture. The mission of the church easily becomes identified with the business model. I think I'm safe in saying that this is a universal temptation for every religious institution, whether large or small. Which brings us to John's Gospel. Many commentators and preachers speculate that Jesus is angry at the whole concept of the marketplace in today's story. The implicit belief behind that is that the marketplace is evil and inherently corrupt and shouldn't be part of the temple structure. But that's not the case. The marketplace is provided for in the Bible. In Deuteronomy, the marketplace removes a right, an obstacle to right worship of God. Because if you're going to Jerusalem, say, uh, you're far, you know, you had to go either on an animal, right on an animal, or you had to walk, one of the two. And you weren't going to bring your own animal all that way to Jerusalem, you could die on the way. So the marketplace was provided for to buy the necessary animals and other things needed to celebrate the festival. Some think that the problem was corruption, that the money changers were enriching themselves by merely changing denarii into shekels and that animal sellers were making obscene amounts of profit. While that might be true, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is mainly angry at. What seems to be happening is that the temple structure has succumbed to the same temptation that every religious institution struggles with at some point. Even though money changing and selling animals for sacrifice was lawful, they co-opted the mission of the temple. The temple was to be a house of prayer for all peoples. It was to be the place where God set his own name so that all nations could come to worship. 
While worship and priestly functions were still important, it seems like the business function became more important. The problem isn't necessarily one of the seventh commandment, which is, you shall not steal. The problem seems to be one of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. Time and time again, God's people, we, are tempted and fall into seeing life as a collection of commodities, a commoditized life. It doesn't matter how big the organization is. At some point, we're always tempted to make God's church about something else, about another definition of greatness than the greatness of God, the demands of God's law and the promises of God's gospel. That, I would guess, is what makes Jesus so angry. And it reminds us that we're always called to go back to basics. Back to basics. Back to what it means to be part of Christ's crucified and risen body. Back to what it means to live as a liberated people, as a freed people. Living free means living by the commandments. But not for the sake of following the rules. It means living in the light of God's amazing grace. Not out of obligation, but out of joy. Not out of hope for reward, but because that's the best way to live. That's what the commandments were given for, after all. At the time Israel was freed from Egypt, they'd suffered 400 years of slavery. Imagine that. 400 years, 20 generations of slavery. Imagine that kind of existence where your parents were slaves, whose parents were slaves, whose parents were slaves, and back and back and back. It would be extremely difficult to even envision what it meant to be free, to even comprehend what it meant to, to, it meant to have another kind of life than under Pharaoh's thumb. And, and indeed, the whole narrative, the whole wilderness narrative shows how much of a struggle it was. Time and time again, the people showed their preference for what they knew, slavery, over what they didn't know, freedom. Freedom was scary. Freedom was terrifying. To be free meant, well, they couldn't go back to what they thought was the comforting part of Egypt. The cucumbers, the leeks, the garlic, all the good food. Hey, do you remember all the good food? Yeah, we were slaves, but at least we ate well. It's hard to live as a free person. But the people have exactly that calling. They have that calling from God to be God's kingdom of priests. They are to be a light to the nations, to help and to show other people how to live, how to live in right relationship with God and with neighbor. And to help them live this way, God gives these commandments directly to his people. The giving of the law is an act of sheer grace, even if, as we heard, it does terrify the people hearing it. Did you, did you catch that? God gives the commandments directly, not through an intermediary, not through Moses. He speaks them directly from the mountaintop. Which is kind of, which is really a scary thing for them. No wonder they say, tell Moses, speak to God for us. Yeah. 
It may seem that way. And the law does indeed elaborate God's just demands of us, but it also reveals the gracious and merciful God at the heart of it. The God who communicates, is always communicating with people like us. Psalm 19 is a beautiful song about the law's beauty. The law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. Of course, we fail to live by the commandments, so I think I'm safe in saying that each of us have broken all of them in thought, word, and deed. In fact, for those of us who are married, our spouse probably knows ways that we've broken them that are hidden to us. So often, we would prefer to live by our own addictions, our own attachments, than by God's word. In that case, the law reveals our brokenness. But God never leaves us there. God never leaves us in despair. God never leaves us in a place of failure, in a place of misery. Jesus, you'll notice, doesn't wait for an invitation. Jesus doesn't wait for us to open the door to him. At some point, just as Jesus did in the temple, Jesus breaks down the door to our heart. He starts driving these attachments and addictions out of the temples of our hearts. He may break a few things. But the point is that he is constantly bringing us back to the word of God, to his law that makes wise the simple, that rejoices the heart, that enlightens the eye, and his gospel that comforts grieving and terrified consciences and gives a new and fresh start every single time. Every single time we have a new start. He brings us back to the basics so we can live a life reconciled with God and our neighbors. Sometimes the way Jesus goes about this may not make much sense to us. As Paul writes, it may seem foolish. But Jesus is thinking so much bigger than the temple structure or any religious structure. He is thinking about God's people of every time and place. God's people, you and me, who make up the temple of his body. He frees us through his self-giving love to us so that we can live as a free people in the light of his amazing grace. So when you come forward to communion today, you know, we do it every Sunday, but expect Jesus to start changing some things. Expect Jesus to start driving things out, to shake things up, to overturn some tables in your heart. And expect that you'll want to resist the old Adam and Eve, time and time again, thinks that the life of sin was so much better, that the life of Pharaoh under Pharaoh was so much better. The old person wants us to cling to our old allegiances and addictions, but Jesus will not give up on us, and we have another destiny, a destiny to live as God's freed people, God's freed people who live in right relationship with God and our neighbors. Trust him. He will make it happen.